you're going to fail and you're going to spend way too much money on something. You might put out a product that's got some issues. You might miss the mark on where you just dropped a ton of cash on your digital advertising or SEO optimization exercise. You know, once those mistakes happen uh, and that failure happens, man, move on. Do not dwell on it. And as a guy who has dwelled on things in the past, what, what happens when you dwell is you don't recover quick enough. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tech Leaders Playbook. Today, I'm very excited to have uh, Andrew Call on the show. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hey, Avitas. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely, brother. So guys, just just so we could talk a little bit about Andrew, because most people don't like to brag. So I'll, I'll do the bragging for you. So Andrew is a a very, very seasoned leader with a extremely notable track uh, track record in growing uh, st- and steering mid-state, early-state startups, mid-state startups into thriving organizations. And I think one of the most impressive things, Andrew, I saw was that you co-founded Creedent Technologies, which was a data encryption software company, I believe, which yep. you ended up... Uh, selling to Dell in 2012. That's, that is, uh, that is no small feat. So congratulations. Yeah, no, no, thanks. Yeah. Dell's a little company, but, uh, you know, they're doing okay. That was, a uh, it was exciting. For yeah. Us. And you've got so much other stuff going on and, and currently he is the, uh, the CEO of Backbox, uh, which is about network automation, uh, and security and bringing innovation solutions to the forefront of technology, especially with what's going on out there with AI, I'm sure. Um, so thank you for being yeah. Andrew. And I've told a little bit of your story, but that was you know, one, one paragraph, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and kind of the journey, uh, to get to this point. Like I live in Dallas, Texas, that's where we're headquartered. Uh, but I was born and raised, went to school in the Midwest. Um, and you know, a lot of people talk about the Midwest as you know, kind of that stable place and broad shoulders and everything. Uh, I think I got my entrepreneurial spirit from that, you know, uh, my grandfather, you know, started out uh, a telephone company, literally, digging holes, putting the telephone poles in the holes back in the 1920s, doing stringing wires. He was with the phone company for 40 years and retired as vice president for the whole North American part of the phone company. So a guy that you know, wow. worked his way up and just a, that entrepreneurial spirit, that work hard ethic just always stuck with me. And I think that really formed who I am. So, you know, I went to college thinking I wanted to be a lawyer and then quickly decided that lawyers, while intellectually challenging and add a lot of value, uh, you don't really build much and I wanted to build something. And so just kind of fell into high tech and just got hooked on it. Cause this was 1992, very, very early end of, you know, uh, the, the, the com stage and, you know, started building things right away. So from age 23 on up, I was immediately hooked on, on fast growth, hyper growth companies. Nice. And, and what angle did you come in at? Were you technical or did you come in from like the cu- customer experience? No. Side? So I, I was not technical at all. I mean, I've been in software for 30 years. Um, never. Wow. Yeah. Other than high school and college classes, never written a line of code. And I'm talking Pascal and COBOL and basic languages is what I was writing. Um, but I, no, I'm, I'm non-technical from that standpoint, but I understand how technology works. So I came in on the business side. So my first job actually was with Compaq Computer back in 1992, if people mm. remember Compaq, and I was an HR generalist. I had one. Oh, did you? Okay, yeah, awesome. I did. Um, but HR generalist started out um, helping with recruiting, helping as an HR business partner, and that was great because I got to see all the different parts of the business. I got to see sales. I got to see engineering. I got to see customer support. 
And that actually is what got me really attracted to the post-sale side of, of businesses. Once you land that customer, how do you take care of them? And so 28 years of my career has been all around, how do you take care of those customers? How do you make sure that you know the money that you ask them for is going to deliver value back to them and that they're going to stay with you for a long time? And I just love that because it's about relationships. And uh, and to me, that like th- there's a whole bunch of metrics you can have around customer success, but ultimately it's about relationships and the trust that comes out of those relationships. And I love that. Let, let's actually tap into that um, because too often people are focused on sales, yeah. right? And there's statistics that say that new business is five times more uh, expensive to get, right? Versus just retaining your customers. You and I, I think a couple months ago spoke about this and I remember how passionate you were about the customer journey and the customer experience and retaining customers. Tell me a little bit about why you think it's so important uh, and how you go about it. Because everybody pretends they care. Sure. The truth is, usually they don't, especially the bigger companies. You know, they stick you with uh, customer success folks that come and go, come and go, and that really don't care as much. Yeah. Uh, and the bigger the company, the lower level employees they stick you with, and, and rarely do those people stick around long enough to, to genuinely care about what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And the salesperson is long gone. They've plugged you in with a account manager, and now that's kind of where where you sit. Yeah, no, you're you know? you're, you're spot on with that. I think look, the way I look at it is is the the post sale part of the relationship. That's the long tail of a relationship. Building product is hard. Marketing product is hard. Selling product is hard. But if you think about that cycle from building a product to marketing to sales, probably a year and a half to two years. Okay, w- when you include everything. The post-sale side, the customer care, the customer success, the retention of the customer, hopefully that's going to be 5, 10, 15 years or longer. And so that's why I call it the long tail of the relationship. And I think too often people look at customer success as a transactional entity. It's what's your yeah. what's your retention rate? Are you getting that expansion? Have you had your quarterly health check with the, with the customer? And those are all important things for you as a company Yes, But you're not thinking about it from the standpoint of what's important to the customer. And what's important to the customer is, I just wrote a big check in most cases. I want to make sure that I'm getting value for this. And you guys really understand what's important to me. And, and my love, passion, whatever word you want to use for this, really just has come from the consumer side. I, get, I have always grown incredibly frustrated with uh, transactional models, whether it's at a restaurant or a car dealership, where it's just get me in and get me out. I don't feel like you value me. Yep. Like I don't want to leave a tip. I don't want to come back and you know eat at your place again. I don't want to buy a car from you again. I'm not asking for special treatment, but I'm asking for you to show that you value the time and effort that I put into coming into your place. And so I I have always taken that perspective and said if I ever have a chance to influence an experience for a customer on the business side, I want to do that. And a lot of this came from. Yeah. Hearing customers call me really pissed off. Hey, your product doesn't work. Your services person was a jerk. Or there's been so much turnover on the CS side, as you alluded to. I don't know who to talk to. And so I love solving those problems. More importantly, I love putting a long-term sustainable solution in place for them to say, okay, you got my back. I trust you. Let's keep going forward. My favorite, Andrew, is how intense the... The customer experience becomes as your contract is coming to an end and they want to renew you for what used to be a year. And now, for example, LinkedIn tries to lock you in for three years. 
and they whine and dine and care and meet with you. And then, and then what happens is the minute you sign, they've disappeared, yep. right? And, and the conversations become, uh, oh, cool, let's pretend we care what you're doing so we can now upsell you on new products we have. And, and you can see that from a mile away, right. you know, and you get that, oh, oh, feeling when you're in those calls. As a founder, I get these calls all the time and I'm like, ah, I get it, or worse. Oh, we have an issue with our software. Uh, put a ticket in. Noted. <laughs> Noted. All right. So I'll remember that next time you reach out. I'll, I'll have you uh, put a ticket in uh, with my team. Yeah. So it's great that you take it so damn serious. No, you, you, you have know? to. I mean, it's look when we're when we're all said and done. When it's all said and done, and you're done working, and and you're not checking emails every day, and you're not worried about the next promotion. What's going to be important to you? And it's it sounds cliche, and it sounds like it's out of a Hallmark movie. But it's the relationships you build, and it's how you treat people. And 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 for yep. me, that is everything from my pe- teammates to my employees to my customers. And look, I'm the face of this organization, and I want to make sure that they trust me, that they know that I'm going to be here to have their back and fix problems and make sure that they're getting value from the money that they spent. Because, look, we're in the realm of, of IT infrastructure and IT security. That's important stuff. And if I screw that up, then, you know, there's going to be hell to pay, probably maybe even their jobs. And I don't want that to happen. So, yeah, I love it. I think it's important. I love that. Can you take me a little bit through the journey? Because, uh, you know, I'm I'm an advisor and an investor in in startups. And I think the folks that would be listening and would care about this, how did you take Credent Mm -hmm. from a startup to, to get in, getting in, uh, probably a very valuable acquisition by Dell. Like, tell me the journey of where it started and how you were able to get to the point where a company like Dell took note mm-hmm. and 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 cared enough to to acquire your company. Yeah, and this is a great question because I, I love that company. We did a lot of great things. Uh, the first thing I'll say is a total team effort, and we had the, everybody in the organization bought into what we were doing, worked with some fantastic people top to bottom. So you know, I can just communicate what we as a team did. It wasn't just me that made that happen. But, you know, what it really was, our very first customer, our very first customer was a little software company called PepsiCo. You know, we had no, essentially no product. We had no revenue. Um, This is, we were five months into kind of conceptually architecting our product and we got connected with Pepsi. And Pepsi had this problem where they were trying to protect, again, Cretan was a data encryption software. And they wanted a way to secure the devices that their route drivers had because those devices, you know, they're doing all these deliveries to all these stores. And a lot of route drivers, you know, they're coming after hours, early morning. You know, they have passcodes of how to get into the, to the grocery store. They have information on, on inventory and products and, and contact information. Long story short, that needed to be protected. So we met a guy um, who said, hey, I like what you're doing. We were able to sell the vision of the product. And they said, look, tell you what, we'll spend uh, some time and money with you if you guys can make a product specific to our needs. And so that was really lesson number one, listening to what the customer wanted and needed. Now, again, we had a plan and we had an idea of what we wanted to build, but it was really PepsiCo that influenced what we ended up building. That became our MVP. We took it to market and then started selling that to other customers. But you know, from there, that was step number one. And everything that we did, we, we built motion. 
Are we building product on time? Do we have milestones? Are we listening to what their needs are? Do we know where they're going long term? Because this was a kind of a short term problem. But but where is PepsiCo going longer term with their data security needs? And so we started wrapping our arms around them, and which I think is really the genesis of what the customer success model is today. Uh, and we listened to them. And from there, your referrals started to happen. And they said, hey, I can make a recommendation to this company and this company. And you know, all of a sudden, our ecosystem of customers and opportunities started to grow. And we started implementing that same model. I keep calling it wrapping our arms around the customer. Um, and that, that allowed us to, to do two things. It allowed us to get to market quickly. It allowed us to build product um, uh, that was going to add value. Uh, and then it allowed us to really understand and refine what our post-sale relationship model was going to look like because we'd spent so much time and effort with them on the front end we knew that there was going to have to be an equal amount if not greater uh, of time and effort on the back end and so you know i uh, to this day i thank pepsico for really influencing my thinking around that and really how to take care of a customer because that was my job we had a ceo we had a head of engineering we had a head of sales and as the guy that was setting up corporate infrastructure i had support and services i'm like Screw it. I'm just going to find out a way to build a totally different model that takes care of these customers. So I was intimately involved in everything every step of the way. And you're saying PepsiCo then introduced you to other uh, clients. They did, yeah. Uh, and that, and then from there, of course, we started to have marketing would kick in, et cetera. But look, of course, our, our second customer, um, and again, we're, we were Dallas-based as well. Our second customer was Mary Kay Cosmetics, you know, um, another big, mm. another big name, a legendary company here in Dallas. And so another large opportunity. And so all of a sudden, we got a reputation for being able to secure data um, within these large enterprises. Well, that's that, those are two, two very important things. One, reputation. Yeah. If you start just taking care of your customers, not so you can sell, upsell or not so you can retain, but just to take care of, period, right. using a go-giver's model, they can't wait to speak you up and to refer you to people. Completely. Because again, yeah. you stand out so quickly from the crowd of, all right, I sold you, I'm passing you off to some junior person that you'll probably uh, probably ignore your emails um, because they really don't care a lot of times, right? right? Um, and, and, and the reputation you build and the referral hub that your best customers become is, is invaluable. I mean, it's incredibly underestimated with folks. Versus selling and selling and selling and selling. Yeah, you're you're spot on with that. And look, I'll, the, the most the most perfect proof point for all of this is um, the night of the acquisition, the night that Dell had acquired us. Um, we had gone out to dinner uh, with some of the executives from the Dell uh, executive team. We're sitting at dinner, nice restaurant. We just celebrated everything, and we'd had the all hands company meeting, et cetera. So just kind of a select group of us had gone out for dinner. And I'm sitting there at the table, and the gentleman that led the acquisition, who was an executive VP at Dell, who reported directly to Jeff Clark, who was Michael Dell's number two uh, at the time. I don't, I mm -hmm. don't know where Jeff sits these days, but he distinctly said, "Hey, do you know why we bought you guys?" And you know, we go around the table. Our head of engineering is like, "Oh, because of our encryption solution, and we were embedded on your laptops." And he's like, "Yes, but no." You know, ask another question because we've got a great sales model, short sales cycle. Yes, but no. And he looks at me and he says, do you, do you know why we bought you? And I said, honestly, based on their answers, if those aren't the right answers, I'm not sure I know. And he goes, <laughs> we bought you for one very, all those other reasons are important, but we bought you for the single most important fact that when we did reference checks with your customers, all of your customers consistently said that how you take care of them 
as a customer is better than any vendor they've ever worked with. Better than Oracle, better than Salesforce, great companies as well. But to hear that and for them to say that our customer success model and the reason that they were retained was one of the reasons why Dell acquired us, man, that's huge compliments. And and I'll tell you what, even now just saying that I kind of get a little bit of goosebumps because it was a moment of pride because we, 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 we built that success model because it was the right thing to do. We didn't do it because it's the term du jour and because everybody else was doing it. We did it because for survival, really. I love that. That's really cool. Um, tell me a little bit about Backbox, the vision for Backbox and how a non-technical person starts a very technical product. Network automation is not, you know, it's not, uh, it's not something that oh, I'm just going to create a SaaS platform to go out there and, you know, a, a simple um, platform to solve a small problem. Why did you think there was an issue here? And why did you start Backbox? Tell us a little yeah, bit about well, that. In, in fairness, so, so Backbox had started you know, there are two co-founders that started the company before me. Um, ah. And then I stepped in a private equity firm that I've been working with bought Backbox and they asked me to step in ah. and lead it to the next iteration of growth. But but your question is still valid because even, you know, go back to Creedon, non-technical guy, co-founder of a company. Yeah, My whole career has been in IT infrastructure. I, I, I mean, with the exception of Compaq because they make consumer and enterprise products. But majority of my career has been in IT infrastructure. Infrastructure to me is the foundation of what allows a company to run. It's the non-sexy stuff that is important that uh, that I love. Because think about your house. If your electrical wiring's not good, if your plumbing's not good, then you could have the most gorgeous house with the most beautiful appliances, but if they don't work, it doesn't mean anything. So to me, the infrastructure yeah. is what runs everything, and I love that part. And so I've always been attracted to it. But Backbox, you know, to your question, what we do, network automation and network device security, um, think of it this way. Every company has one or two or dozens or hundreds of networks that run globally, usually globally. On those networks, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different network security devices, routers, switches, firewalls, et cetera. There's also a whole bunch of different non-security-related devices, storage servers, printers, routers, what have you, uh, that are connected. But specific to the security devices, what we do, if that network goes down, how you had it configured can be incredibly time-consuming to bring back up and get get up and running. Most companies spend hundreds of thousands of man-hours per year updating their networks, bringing them back up, uh, patching the devices, doing the, the new OS upgrades, checking for vulnerabilities. Our automation software automates that process. So instead of hundreds or mm. thousands or hundreds of thousands of man hours per year checking the devices that are on the network, we do that through our automation software. So we can automate the patching process for your routers. We can automate the upgrade process for your for your switches and your firewalls. We can check for the vulnerabilities across all, all these different devices. We can identify the vulnerability and, that, and then stack rank which ones need to be addressed. Automating that process is a huge time saver, productivity saver, um, and also it's from a from a security standpoint, it's important to know that your routers, switches, firewalls are all compliant and up and running. So that's what we do. That that automation element is probably the most important thing. And, and backing up how that network was configured, um, it being able to bring it back up quickly is incredibly important because if their network goes down, data does not flow across your enterprise, and if data doesn't flow, commerce stops. Andrew, what's a what's the perfect use case for Backbox? Like, what's a perfect customer? Perfect customer would be somebody that 
let's say they've got a thousand i mean it can be any any number of devices but let's just say that they have uh handwritten scripts that they're doing to try and automate this process uh they've got it budget they don't know where to uh, to align that budget they don't know how to get to optimize their infrastructure so it's somebody that um doesn't have a network automation solution in place they've got hundreds if not thousands of devices and they're using homemade or spaghetti code scripts to try and automate that process. Incredibly time consuming, incredibly costly, incredibly expensive, prone to human error. Uh, that's probably the best use case for us. Who are some of the co- uh, competitors that we would be aware of? Yeah, so there's there's a, there's a number. Uh, there's a company called Ansible that's out there. They were acquired by Red Hat a few years ago. Uh, a company called Glueware. Uh, we see them in competitive cycle, sales cycles. A company called Ovic. Uh, where we've had a lot of success is uh, SolarWinds Network Configuration Manager product or SolarWinds NCM. Um, we've been fortunate to win a lot of business from unhappy SolarWinds customers. And, mm-hmm. you know, look, it's a competitive space right now. And people want to find ways to optimize their costs and drive efficiencies in their organizations. And so when they look at us, we're doing some pretty innovative things in the realm of, of automation. And we're doing things that others aren't. Um, so they're, they're looking to us and we've been able to take down some good market share. So it's pretty exciting right now. Andrew, how did, um, how's AI affecting, impacting your industry? You know, I think it's impacting. And I don't mean technology. I'm talking about network automation, network security. Yeah. Look, I think the big thing is, is it's affecting our industry. It's affecting us because it's, because the question is coming up, how are you going to leverage AI? How do I know that if I do leverage AI, build it into a product, put it into my infrastructure, the machines aren't going to take over. So do we really have trusted AI yet? And that's a question I hear time and time again. I did a recent customer swing, uh, met with a number of customers in Europe, and that question came up from some of our biggest. We, one of the largest teleco companies in Europe is a customer of ours. And I remember sitting with them and they said, are you putting AI into your product? And I said, well, certainly something we're talking about because I think we have to be aware of it. And they said, well, let us know when you do because we're concerned about AI. Um, and I asked them why. And I said, because we, there were exact words, we don't want the machines to take over. And there's benefit. <laughs> and, and their whole point, and we got into a longer conversation around this, but their whole point was AI is going to add some value, just like automation has added some value. And there's an overlap. If you were to build sure. a Venn diagram, automation and AI certainly have some overlap. But they want to make sure they want to make sure that something as trusted as their infrastructure, something as trusted as what allows the data to flow, is going to be enabled by something that at least has been fully vetted uh, and that is going to align to the way they want it to run. And I think it's a fair question. So people are excited about it. Uh, I still think there's a lot of unknowns about it. Nice. Um, I don't know if this is confidential or not, but Backbox was, uh, I'm assuming, did a majority cap with the private equity firm. Is, is that how that worked? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly correct. Okay. And tell us if there's founders out there that have worked their butts off to get the company to a certain point. Where is the advantage of doing a majority or minority cap with a private equity firm and, and what, you know, what are some of the setbacks and, and, and opportunities that that creates for, for that organization, such as back. Yeah, I think that, and I, this is a good question. And, and I don't know if our, our old co-founders are listening, but you know, they're still shareholders in the business. They're not, op- oh, they're nice. not operating in the business, but they've got enough confidence in what we want to do that they wanted to remain shareholders. And look, I hope that they get another, a second bite of the apple when we, uh, when we get to the, that point. 
But I think the biggest value is number one, capital infusion. You can put capital into the business because look, if you're going to start a company, the objective is probably to grow it. And, you know, um, I I hate the term unicorns to me, it's build a good sustainable business. Um, if you want to build a good sustainable business, you need capital. So I think that's, that's probably the most obvious, but number two is usually companies that have been started, you just don't have the network and the connection and the manpower. And so when a private equity firm, like the private equity firm that, that acquired Backbox steps in, there's a network of talented people that have been there and done that, um, to, to help scale the company. I'm a good example of that. I'd done a startup, helped grow it, get acquired. I've been part of an IPO at another company, been part of a turnaround at a multi-billion dollar company. My experience isn't perfect, but I had a level of expertise and experience that the prior co-founders and their existing executive team did not have. So it's that access to intellectual capital and experience. Um, and, And then the, the third thing, I think, is just the ability for them to continue to roll forward. If, if a co-founder or founder wants to um, bring on a private equity firm, you know, there might be other opportunities down the road for them uh, to invest, stay invested, et cetera. And I think that's more of a personal decision. But those, to me, are the big, three biggest benefits. Very nice. And I think you asked about the, the drawbacks. Yeah. What's, a, what's a one drawback? You know, it's uh, speaking from experience, having gone through an acquisition, uh, the biggest drawback is handing over your baby, something that you built. It's an emotional process. I mean, I just I just sent my daughter to I college bet. back in August. My my first daughter went off to college in August, and it's it's kind of the same emotions. It's it's handing what you've built and what you've curated and loved and put blood, sweat, and tears into for so many years, and giving it to somebody else and hoping they take care of it the right way. That's the hardest part. And I know that our, our, the co-founders of Backbox, you know, went through that, that was difficult for them to hand off. And I remember we had a conversation and they literally said, Hey, Andrew, we think it's best if we step aside. And I knew that was hard for them to have that conversation. And so I respect it. Having gone through it, I know what it's like. Um, I, I think that that's probably the number one and probably the biggest impactful thing in terms of a drawback. That's great. You know, earlier we talked about uh, customer relationship building and a lot of this stuff seemed innate, uh, natural for someone like you. Could you could you share actual like effective strategies for building, uh, you know, long lasting customer relationships in the tech Uh, industry? Give us three strategies versus just things you would organically do because you're a good person and your relationship. Yeah, focused. so fair, very fair question. So three strategies. I think number one, um, understand why they bought your product. You have full stop. Did you, did they? If you don't really understand why they bought your product, then you're never going to have a lasting relationship. It might be a year or two years, but you got to understand that. And what I mean by that is, what did they have a specific problem they were trying to solve? Did they have a product in place that wasn't working? Was it an organizational mandate from somebody higher up that said, buy this product? So you, whatever it was, you've got to understand because that's going to determine your next actions. Once you've understood that, then you've got to say, okay, now I understand why you bought today. Let's talk about where you want to go in 18 to 24 months. What is your what is your departmental strategy and how does that align with your corporate strategy? And the reason that that is important is because it's all about long ter- longevity with them. You don't want to be a point solution. You don't want to be a solution for for a period of time. 
you want it to be long term. And so if you can understand where they're going, hmm. uh, and that's going to come through whether you want to call it quarterly business reviews, or you want to just you know, pick up the, the champion that signed the check for you and, and have build a relationship. You've got to you've got to understand what their long term strategy is going to be, because you've got to align your product and your support motions around that. And then the third is who are the people? The third piece is you've got to understand who are the people within the organization that that have put their name on the line for your product. Does it go? Wow, and it, that's because great. if you can align all of those three pieces, then you can start to build the long term relationship. And there's a lot of analogies I can use. I hope hopefully it's pretty straightforward. But if you don't know who those people are, whose whose name is aligned to your product internally. Um, you're missing a massive opportunity and it's, and you can't think of it as I've got to upsell, I've got to sell more product. You've got to think of it as, am I doing everything that's important to them? Do they know the value that we're delivering within the enterprise? And that's why I see these are things that go well beyond the standard metrics. Metrics are important. I get that. We live and die by net retention and gross retention. All those are important, but for any people in the world realm of customer success that are listening to this, if you are approaching this as a metrics based uh, initiatives, you're not going to be long-term with that customer. It has to be a relationship and trust-based combined and coupled with the metrics that you want to drive. The agenda, the metric, not no metric, but the agenda and the, the, the objective should be to take yeah. care of your customer and continue to meet their exactly. needs. Basically, and some right? people can do it in a genuine way. I think we've all been sold things by people. Um, so, so I think yeah. this is, this is a business, the post sale business is one where you've got to be a genuine personality. You can't be a transactional personality. Uh, personality is probably the wrong word. You need to be a genuine person because you have to be able to yes. care. And that's the funnel. If, if you know, I had a mentor, a gentleman named Tom Mendoza. He was a former chairman, vice chairman at NetApp, where I used to work. He hired me at NetApp. Um, and he has a great saying that says, you know, people don't care until they know you care. And that's absolutely right. It's really good. Andrew, you mentioned you have a daughter. I have, I have a wife and two kids. Uh, what advice would you give to existing entrepreneurs or, you know, folks that, that want to start their own companies, uh, and want to balance a little bit of the, 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 the family dynamics and the work, because if you don't give all of you to your baby, uh, in this case, your, your company baby, uh, you won't be able to succeed. But if you go too far in that direction, yeah. you're going to give up yeah. your real baby, right? The, the real why, why you even started all this stuff, which is typically uh, our families, at least it is for me. Like what, what advice do you give? Make sure that you surround yourself on the business side, surround yourself with people you can trust, people, good people that will have your back because you're going to have to say, Hey, I need to pause from this meeting or I need to pause from, from the work for a day or even a week for a vacation. You've got to know that the business will still run and the people you trust are there to have your back. So that's probably the most important thing. Every, every look, most entrepreneurs are, they're intense. They want to do it all themselves. They feel they're the only one that can solve that problem. And there may be some degree of truth to that, but the reality is if, if you have a good team and you're truly collaborative and you share with them, they're going to have your back as well. And if you don't have that, then you probably need to rethink how you're, how you're building your team at the company. Huge, huge. Andrew, you've been through, you've been through quite a few startups, mid cap companies, some you've started, some you've been just part of. How do you maintain agility 
while in growth? Because the most common thing that happens is you're a startup, you go super fast, things are great, they're fun, there's yeah. not a lot of layers, and then you realize, oh man, there's too many, you know, there's too many, yeah. you're your own bottleneck a lot of times. So you bring in great people, right? Mid managers who are now in charge of whether it's biz ops or ops or sales ops to start streamlining and creating systems. And, uh, but what I've noticed is if you do it too quickly or you do, you go too intense or too soon, you end up with a very bureaucratic, slow, sluggish company. So how do you maintain that agility while creating those systems so you can grow and scale? Yeah, I think this one is um, learning the hard way for me is you've got to realize, uh, accept the fact that at some point, maybe two or three times a year, you're going to fail and you're going to spend way too much money on something. You might put out a product that's got some issues. You might miss the mark on where you just dropped a ton of cash on your digital advertising or SEO optimization exercise. You know, once those mistakes happen uh, and that failure happens, man, move on. Do not dwell on it. And as a guy who has dwelled on things in the past, what, what happens when you dwell is you don't recover quick enough. It's like it's like um, you, you get you get punched in the nose and you, and you fall down or you trip and you fall down. You can lay there and cry and think, oh, my God, I fell down. Or you can get up, look around, get your bearings and keep on walking and just hope nobody saw it. <laughs> Just man, get up and keep going. Um, and and I, I I used to I used to dwell on things because I wanted to be perfect. And you're not going to be perfect when you're building a company, and you're not going to be perfect when you're exiting a company. So just accept the fact that there is no such thing as as perfection, um, and and keep carrying forward. And that, this may sound a little bit cliche, but again, as a guy that has dwelled on things for too long or worried too much about what people thought, um, I've it's taken me a long, long time to get over that and, and realize, hey, keep going forward. There's a great saying that I use with my, my perfectionist type of folks, including myself, is perfection is the enemy of done, right? So if you're looking for yeah. 100% yeah. before you can launch a product or an, uh, a new feature or a new process or procedure or whatever, you're never going to get anything off the ground. Get it to 80% because we want quality. We don't want crap and get right. it out there. Let the customers, internal or external, give you the feedback you need uh, and stay stay, um, stay on your toes and constantly uh, make moves. That's great. The, ter the term MVP in the software business, minimum viable yep. product, is, is relevant. It's true. It's, it, it totally aligns with what you were saying. And that's about. where uh, Agile came about, right? It came from constantly yeah. making changes. Uh, often, as as customers change, as the internal uh, folks change their minds, right? Um, I've had I've right. had folks frustrated with me because I'll ask for something and then I want something new, um, and the person will get frustrated. They'll say, "Well, this is what you asked for," and I said, "Yeah, that was four weeks ago. Things have already changed." <laughs> well, but the metrics say exactly. this. But the, who cares what the metric says? The the now we've changed to what we're trying to achieve. So let's adjust the the metrics yeah. or the KPIs for that. So that's great. Um, let's talk about a little bit about your leadership uh, philosophy. What's your approach on, on building and, and motivating and keeping teams motivated, high performing teams, and how do you maintain that drive and cohesion and and all that as you grow? Yeah, there's uh, this is and this is a fun topic because you know, for me, you know, leadership is kind of, kind of constantly refining, and I'm always depending on the size and the scale of the company I've been in. Yet, 
there's a fundamental aspect of what you do and then you want to refine based on, on your environment. But for me, it's two things. Clearly communicate what your plan is, what your objectives are, what's the outcome that you're driving for. Make sure everybody understands that and buys into it. And then the second most important thing is autonomy. Give people autonomy to figure out how they want to get from the beginning of that plan to the end of that plan. Yes, there's milestones and yes, there's objectives that we have to make sure that we're hitting along the way. But that autonomy to let people run their business uh, is incredibly important. Uh, and again, comes from experience. You can you can micromanage your way uh, to getting to an objective. But are you really going to win the hearts and minds of everybody if they can bring their own style and personality and flair to the process? And that's what I try and do here at Backbox. We've got a global company. we got half our company is in Tel Aviv. The other half is here in North America. We've got some folks in Europe. And they're all going to have different styles. And so I want to give people the autonomy to do their job as long as they clearly understand what the objectives are and what the outcomes that we're driving for are. And then you know what are kind of the core elements and the values and how we operate – um, you've got the autonomy to do your job. And for me, that's about trusting yep. people. You know, um, Andrew, you know, I, I run a technology consulting and recruiting firm. And when right. people have asked like, well, what, you know, why, why is it that your folks stay longer, they grow and stuff like that? And I could never, I never found the vocabulary. You'd say things like, you know, relationships and we do a good job during the process. Recently it's hit me. It's everything is about alignment, right? So you mm -hmm. can have so many things done right uh, internally, but if in the recruiting process, you couldn't find alignment or you didn't look for alignment between the, the, the people you hire and the vision of the company, it always falls apart. Uh, sure. Having, yeah. having core values is incredibly important, but that's part of alignment. Sure. Having good management is incredibly important, but without alignment, it doesn't matter. I'm managing people to goals they don't care about. Right. Uh, right. I mean, you could hire the most you could have the best recruiting engine in the world and hire the best people because you pay higher than market and everything's great and you have a good culture. The problem is if your goals and their goals are not aligned, it doesn't matter. It's all short-lived, you know? So um, I feel like that part's missed so often is the get the right people on the bus so you don't have to spend a bunch of time managing them, right? So we're trying to, yeah. we're here trying to create more self-managing teams. And I think sometimes the misunderstanding yeah, is, oh, I get to do whatever I want. It's not what you get to what you want is you hire the right people who are highly motivated, intrinsically motivated, and then they get to do it, what they need to do to accomplish the job in their own autonomous ways, right? That's where the exactly. self-management comes yeah. in. Yeah, no, I, and I like, how you, I like how you phrase that. One of the things I tell everybody that I, that I interview, and I've said this at other companies I've been at, um, and I especially mean this now, given my role here at, at Backbox. But when people join the organization, I tell them, I say, however long you're here, whether it's a year or three or five or 10, I want you to look back at your time at Backbox and say, that was one of the best experiences in my career. Um, because I met, I worked with smart people, uh, I made some good money, um, and I learned something. And if I can provide a platform for that to happen and, and how you process that down the road, um, I want that to, I want that to happen. I look, I, I love Backbox and I love what we're doing, but I still think back to other places where I worked and I have very fond memories of those. And I want people to have fond memories of Backbox. Of course. Of course. So. Andrew, what's a big project you all are working on right now that people should, should look out for and whether it's customers or whatever. Yeah, no, I think what we want to do is, um, 
kind of a big audacious goal was uh, I talked about IT infrastructure. You know, I want us to be one of the a premier IT infrastructure platform. I want us to be one of the companies that is not only monitoring your your net your network, monitoring the devices, checking to make sure that they're they're upgraded and they're compliant, but I want to be able to do closed loop remediation. I want to be able to say, look, we're, we're, we're watching your environment. We see what's happening. We see where the vulnerabilities are. And guess what? We're not just identifying them. We're patching them. Oh, and we're even going to be preemptive to say, hey, there's some problems and potential uh, issues you might be facing down the road that you might want to look out for. If we can be that at a broader IT infrastructure level, and that's, a, again, a broad term, um, that that's kind of a big, hairy, audacious goal or big big vision good one. that I'd uh, yeah. like to That's fulfill. a good one. Andrew, yeah. how, do, how do people find you for whatever reason or Backbox? How, <laughs> how, do we, how do we reach you? You've got a lot of great insights. No, thanks for asking. Thanks. Uh, LinkedIn, you can always ping me on LinkedIn. It's Andrew Call, K-A-H-L. I'm there. I think I look the same. I, I don't think I have a beard in my profile picture, but it's but it's me. Uh, you can go to backbox.com uh, and check us out, um, and you can you can reach out to us anyway on Backbox. So I'd say those are the two easiest ways to find us. I'm not on uh, Instagram or or uh, TikTok, uh, sadly. No TikTok. Uh, just go to the standard business channels. No TikTok. I know. I I I was filmed for one by my kids. And embarrassed thoroughly, but I don't have my own channel. That's awesome. Maybe That's awesome, Andrew. Well, hey, man, you yeah. you've been great. So many so many insights about customer experience and how to really really make it count, and about you know leadership and about network automation. So I appreciate you being here, and uh, uh, look forward to connect with you long term. Right, that's what relationships are all about. Absolutely, Vince. Thanks so much. This was fun. I love talking about this stuff, and um, I hope I hope there were some nuggets of truth in there. Thanks a lot. And that brings us to the end of another great episode of the Tech Leaders Playbook. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope you took away some valuable insights to apply in your professional journey. Don't forget to subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss out on the next great conversation. I promise it'll be good. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you could leave us a review. Your feedback not only helps us improve, but also helps others discover the podcast. Better leaders mean better working environments. Better working environments leads to happier people. Remember, a rising tide lifts all boats. I'm Avita Santablian, and this has been the Tech Leaders Playbook. Keep leading, keep learning, keep giving, and I'll see you on the next one. Until then, stay inspired, my friends.